We're back, folks. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this month, we are delving into the broad but deep topic of the sci-fi classic Blade Runner. Yeah, this is something that I hadn't actually watched all the way through prior to preparing ourselves for this topic. But I think we came out of this with a really interesting conversation. I think so too, Mike. And I think not only did we this panel have a lot of unanimity, but it also had some great dissent. So. Yes. And speaking of opinions, the latest installment of Radio vs. the Mailbag, where we put a question to you, the listeners, is on our website, radioversusthemartians.com. This month's question, what fictional cliches are you never sick of no matter how many times you see them? I racked my brain trying to find out exactly what I was going to say about this. And you can read my response and Mike's response and comment with your own at radioversusthemartians.com. Absolutely. And since we are talking Blade Runner this month, that means it's time for our recommendations. So if Blade Runner is something that sounds interesting to you and you want to know more about Blade Runner and more about the things that Blade Runner inspired, we've got some recommendations for you. My first recommendation would be there is a documentary that's on the Blu-ray release of the final cut of the movie called Dangerous Days. And it's an exhaustive look about the stories behind the movie itself, how it got to be where it is, and essentially all of the little nooks and crannies and special stories that make it the unique gem of a sci-fi classic that it is. If I were to have one more recommendation for people who really, really want to dive in deep, the book Future Noir by Paul Salmon is essentially the Bible for Blade Runner-related information. Paul Salmon is the journalist who did the original article in the periodical Cinema Fantastique about Blade Runner and has followed it ever since. The book is entirely exhaustive and it's really only for the Blade Runner aficionado. But I would recommend both to anyone who wants to know more about this amazing piece of cultural work. And this month, I'm not going to recommend something Blade Runner related, but something that would not exist if not for Blade Runner. Oh. Which is a comic book series that I absolutely love the shit out of. And that's Transmetropolitan, written by Warren Ellis, with <laughs> art by Derek Robertson. This is the story of a journalist in the vein of Hunter S. Thompson named Spider Jerusalem, who lives in a huge, gritty, organic, obscene cyberpunk future city, which has gotten so big that people just call it the city. Advertising is even on the sidewalk, children's programming has graphic sex in it, and there's even a new religion created every 10 minutes. This is a bit of Spider Jerusalem's love and hate relationship with the city writing. It's a political story that is not dated. It's remarkable. Hmm. I actually reread Transmetropolitan just a couple of years ago, and hmm. it was amazing how fresh and interesting and current a lot of the things raised in it in. This is a series that takes place in a city very similar to the one in Blade Runner. We're talking about, like we said, advertising. We're talking about just packed full of people and takes place in a non-distinct near future this sort of exaggerated and extrapolated version of the present rather than a Buck Rogers Star Trek future. Sure. And, and this genre of cyberpunk, I will posit, probably would not exist if it wasn't for the work of Ridley Scott on Blade Runner. Undoubtedly. And with that out of the way, we are going to jump right to the panel. We will see you folks on the other side. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain, time to die. That haunting line of dialogue is the heart-wrenching, bittersweet finale to a film that forever altered the blueprint for science fiction on film. The sci-fi fans and film buffs listening already know that I'm talking about Blade Runner, my personal choice for best movie of all time. Blade Runner is the 1982 film directed by Ridley Scott, the visionary behind Alien, Legend, and Gladiator, 
Based on a novel by prolific sci-fi writer Philip K. Dick and starring Harrison Ford hot off the blockbuster releases of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and The Empire Strikes Back. The film follows a bounty hunter, Rick Deckard, who tracks and executes illegal androids, called Replicants, in a near-future dystopian Los Angeles. Deckard is forced back from retirement to hunt down a gang of newer, deadlier replicants who, unlike their predecessors, can experience emotions. In the process of tracking his targets, Deckard falls in love with a replicant named Rachel and finds himself dangerously outmatched by his prey. With the credentials of such amazing talent and an audience already warmed up to intriguing and strange worlds, you would have expected this film to have been a box office blowout, obliterating the expectations of sci-fi fans forever. Well, you'd be partially correct. Blade Runner was, in its time, a box office failure and open to mostly poor critical reception. Critic to end all critics, Roger Ebert called it a stunningly interesting visual achievement, but a failure as a story. And owing to truly devastating timing, Blade Runner had to compete against the likes of Conan the Barbarian, E.T., The Road Warrior, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, and John Carpenter's The Thing, all of them playing in theaters at the same time as Blade Runner. But stiff competition is not all that held it back. A great Friday night popcorn flick, this was not. Its bleak and brutal setting, with its dauntless and some would argue joyless characters, set against a plot that was ornate and confounding, all made for a huge letdown for audiences expecting to see Han Solo hunting androids in a fun, simple, adventure-filled romp. For the next decade, Blade Runner was nearly forgotten, eclipsed by more popular and longer-lasting science fiction franchises. It ended up being merely a blip on Harrison Ford's otherwise titanic career and Ridley Scott's. The film did not attain its cult status until home video arrived, on which its myriad layers of visual detail and its subtle intrigue and innuendo could be scrutinized on multiple viewings. And it was only after a limited theatrical exhibition of an early cut of the film, now referred to as the workprint version, that Warner Brothers was convinced of the commercial potential of the film and commissioned a director's cut to be released on VHS. This new cut included minor changes, like the removal of the stiltered Deckard voiceover and the happy ending and perhaps most significantly, the infamous unicorn dream sequence, suggesting a radically different take on the main character. New life was breathed into a film many thought was a forgotten flop. As for my own relationship to Blade Runner, I had never seen it until high school. I was immediately entranced by the world, the dark, rain-slick streets choked with dizzying neon, the monolithic towerscapes. I was transfixed by the incredible score and sucked in by the unique and bizarre characters that populated this world and the mature depth of its plot. I loved it so much it was the first DVD I ever bought. Even today I find myself enraptured with every viewing, of which for me it's been easily over a hundred times. I love, love, love this movie. And it's not just me. The ripples of cultural influence from Blade Runner are simply too numerous to count. Mythbuster and former Lucasfilm effects master Adam Savage said it has a quote, Citizen Kane level importance on science fiction films. The art direction and visual style has been inspired countless films, Batman, Dark City, Twelve Monkeys, and The Matrix, to name a few. More video games you can imagine, musicians, especially electronic music, and even fashion designers. It also helped jumpstart the nascent cyberpunk literary genre, and despite the fact that it was a box office failure in 1982, it spawned three sequel novelizations, a 1997 video game, and perhaps the most crucial, a 2007 Final Cut release wherein Ridley Scott was given the budget and authority to release his definitive version of the film. Looking back over 30 years since the release, I find it amazing that even now, new details are being unearthed, broader themes explored, and wild conclusions are still being drawn from this 117-minute box office flop sci-fi art film. 
its plotting and sometimes downright glacial pacing, its dystopian fatalism and its numerous inconsistencies keep it very far from perfection. But somehow it pops up on numerous top 10 lists and remains right on the tip of our tongues. And with that, let's fire up the spinner, clear the chamber on our black hole pistols. We're jumping a shuttle to the off-world colonies. It's all about Blade Runner on this panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. I'm pleased to introduce today's panel. Our first guest is screenwriter, ex-Lucasfilm and Lightstorm production samurai, and producer of SciFest LA, the first and only sci-fi theater festival, Matt Goodman. Thanks for being here. Oh, it is wonderful to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. I really look forward to getting into it. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Next in studio is senior product manager at Amazon Kindle, aspiring writer, and fiercely vigilant Philip K. Dick fan, Micah Crable. Thanks for being here, Micah. Thanks for having me. And then last but not least, co-host of this damn fine podcast, gaff to my Deckard, Leon Kowalski to my Roy Batty, Mike Gillis. Hey, how's it going? All right, let's jump in here. I'm going to start with you, Matt. Why is Blade Runner, after all these years, still important for us to be talking about? That's a wonderful question. And it's like you said in your great opening, it has been sort of pawed over and picked apart for decades and beloved. I think Blade Runner is unique when it comes to not only science fiction film, but really a visual film as we know it today. Before, you know, the Star Wars took place faraway land in a faraway time, or something like Logan's Run, where it was just so spacey and in the future that it really didn't have any place in everyday. You know, there were no Coca-Cola signs in the future. Right. There was no real life in the future. It was another place in another time. And I think Blade Runner, as far as I can tell, was the first real mainstream film or film at all, maybe since Metropolis, that showed a potential future world that was built upon the world we lived in at the time and live in today. And the production design really was the first film that ever did that. And I think the story also matches the production design in building a future on the bones of today. Now, Micah, I'm going to ask you a similar question. Why is Blade Runner the most poorly adapted Philip K. Dick book? Or maybe it's not. I, I don't know if why I'd are we, say why are you talking total about Blade Runner? Fucking recall. <laughs> <Yes>. I'm sorry. <laughs> why why are you talking about Blade Runner with us today? I'm one who has read most of Philip K. Dick's books. I'm actually saving the last few just because I don't want to run out of them. He's dead after all. <laughs> mm-hmm, but maybe. <laughs> maybe he's not. I don't know. And I'm not one who ever fell in love with the movie. And I'm actually not in love with the book either. It's Hmm. not one of his best books. Hmm. But for me, the reason why I wanted to talk about it is because the movie does reach some great heights in terms of, you know, visual presentation, obviously, and some of the characters and a lot of the bones of the story are there, but the emotion falls flat for me. And it doesn't really meet what Philip K. Dick did do in the book. I think the movie could have gotten there. It just didn't. And for me, that's one of the reasons why... I wouldn't say it's the worst adaptation, but it's not a great adaptation. Good point. We'll, of course, tread upon that territory very soon. But, Mike, I wanted to get your sort of overall thoughts, too. I mean, what is your experience with Blade Runner? We've talked about this many times before, you and I, and I don't even think you've seen it more than once or twice. This was probably my second time watching it all the way through, that I'd seen it when I was a kid, maybe in bits and pieces. I'm not sure if I saw the whole thing, but I saw large chunks of it as a kid, so... I really watched it for the first time as an adult to prepare for this panel. Wow. The things that I can remember from Blade Runner growing up, because it's always been there in the background as a science fiction fan, as a movie fan, 
as somebody who has experience going into VHS rental stores. I've seen the box art. Huh. I mean, we're familiar with that painted box art style that you saw on things like Indiana Jones right. and even Harry Potter, I think, used that same artist. I don't think either he's dead or he's not doing work anymore because it seems like nowadays that everyone is using Photoshop to take photographs and put those situated as the movie poster. But right. the movie poster for Blade Runner is so iconic and I've seen it a thousand times that very distinct visual style that's all over this movie. Right. When you see it in other movies, you go, oh, that's like Blade Runner. And right. I remember images and bits and pieces, but I remember shirtless Rutger Hauer in the rain holding the bird. Right. I right. remember that really cool handgun that Harrison Ford had. Hmm. I remember that it's always fucking raining in that movie. And I remember flying cars. So that's all I had going into this movie. I mean, I had an idea of what the movie was about. Through cultural osmosis, I've managed to pick up a lot of the plot over the years that sure. I know that it's about Harrison Ford wanting to go shoot robots <laughs> in the near future. <laughs> but I want to try to bring back that pronunciation. I know Dr. Zoidberg is the only character who seems to do it these days, but prior to 1970, it was kind of 50-50 with actors and how they said it. I'm a proponent of robots. Like diabetes. It is. <laughs> I would imagine that Wilfred Brimley would pronounce it robot. He probably, yeah. yeah. Hey, get them damn robots off my lawn. But <laughs> that's what I knew about the movie, that it was about Harrison Ford in the rain with a long coat and a cool gun going after robots. I know that my perspective on the movie has sort of changed because I guess my cultural palette has been more and more refined as I've gotten. And I've learned to love other genres other than just things like Star Wars and superheroes, right? which was pretty much my diet growing up. And I love things like crime noir, and I learned to appreciate those aspects of Blade Runner as well. So sure. it's really kind of a sense memory that I have with Blade Runner. That's interesting. So, I mean, I want to really want to start off with talking about the origin of what it was. Obviously, we've already spoiled it for you. I mean, anyone who's familiar with Blade Runner knows that it is based to varying degrees of faithfulness on Philip K. Dick's, I think it's 1969, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's almost a novelette. It's a very short novel. It is fairly short. It's like a Vonnegut novel in that era where you had these great, amazing authors who were writing in paperback, right? And so they're writing this pulpy, spinner rack sort of novels. It's really not strictly necessary to have read the book to understand some of the more cryptic parts of the film, but I think we should look at some of the themes that survived the adaptation. I ran into this quote in reading about Blade Runner, and it both astounded and haunted me to this day. During research, I'm quoting now, during research from an earlier work, Dick had discovered diaries by SS men stationed in Poland. One sentence in particular had a profound effect on him. That sentence read, quote, we are kept awake at night by the cries of starving children, unquote. As Dick explained, there's obviously something wrong with the man who wrote that. I later realized that with the Nazis, what we were essentially dealing with was a defective group mind, a mind so emotionally defective that the word human could not be applied to them, end quote. More importantly for us, worse, Dick noted, I felt that it was not necessarily a sole German trait. The sufficiency had been exported into the world after World War II and could be picked up by people anywhere at any time. I... I mean, the, the we're being kept awake at night by the cries of starving children, like just trying to put your mind around someone writing down that sentence means that there is some bit of their brain of the empathy in their brain and empathy being the theme about Blade Runner and of course, Dick's book, something about it, which it's kind of chilling to consider what that is. And the way, of course, they set this duality up is that you have humans who it's implied in the movie and it is stated in the book that there is a third world war 
that has fucked everything up. And this is why when it's visualized, it's dark in LA, it's dark and it's raining, which are two things that rarely happen in Los Angeles, right? And almost everyone's left Earth. Only people that had some problem with them couldn't leave, essentially. And then there's also this natural antipathy, right? There's the fact that the natural world is dead. And so there's very little left to care about. And that's why in Philip K. Dick's book, the biggest status symbol ever is to have a real live animal because there's so little of it left. There's so little to care about. Which is actually one of the most aggravating things for me about the movie is that it never really explains that. It carries over the artificial animals and it carries over the questions about animals in the Voigt-Kampf test. Right. But it really does not explain it anywhere in the movie. It is somewhat analogous to the 2001 monolith thing, right? Where maybe someone who has seen and read a lot of science fiction but not read the Clark book could intuit what was happening to Dave Bowman at the end and what that represented. But really, you had to fucking read the book to know what was going on. That didn't bother me at all, and I never got around to reading the book. Hmm. Oh, I okay. said that this was actually a good piece of world building, that I'm really in the camp that says that you don't need to explain everything, but sometimes just giving a hint of a world outside of the narrative is enough to really give the sense that the world is organic. Right. And the impression that you get of this world several times is that we have fucked the world in some way. We broke it. Right. And that people are fleeing it and that they're constantly blasting this advertising to let you know that, hey, there's this great new life on the off-world colonies and it's going to be awesome. Right. But there's a desperation behind it. Right. Because if it was really so fucking great, they wouldn't need to advertise it. And it's like they want to try to pretend that we're not retreating to this. And another time in the movie, Zora actually is asked the question of whether the snake she uses in her act is a real one. And her answer is actually, like, I could afford a real snake. Right. And little things like that and the fact that all the other animals we see throughout the course of the story, I think possibly with the exception of the dove at the end. Yeah, the dove, you assume, is a real animal. Yeah, they're all artificial. And I think the sense that we're creating things to fill the gap of the stuff that we destroyed gives a sense of the world because the death of the natural world in the world of Blade Runner isn't the plot. But it does add a flavor to it that we're dealing with essentially a very small scale story in a world that has much bigger problems than, you know, four fugitives. And the creation of that world that is essentially dead and what leads into the idea of, well, we have a problem with life. And so therefore, the way we solve this technologically is to create life is essentially the sci-fi hook of it, right? When we have a need for life, but for whatever reason, we've screwed it up so bad that we have trouble reproducing. Like, I mean, that's literally the problem. There are too few humans on Earth. So what do we need to do? We need to make humans. Of course, it's an allegory, right? Because they're slaves. The word slave labor is used in the credit crawl at the very beginning of the movie. And then, of course, the seminal scene at the end, Roy Batty says, which I think is an even better line than the death line is, it's a painful experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it means to be a slave. I think that the way that Ridley Scott, and I'll, I'll open this up to you, Matt, I think the way that Ridley Scott pulled this off was I think he inverted the relationship between the replicants and the humans in the way that Philip K. Dick did. Because Philip K. Dick portrayed all the replicants as cruel. I mean, at one point in time, they're pulling the legs off of spiders because they're just interested in what the suffering of a creature actually looks like. In Ridley Scott's version of the movie, you have a, so much more of a sense of pathos for the replicants because they're shit on. They are slaves. In fact, the most desperate act they could possibly do is go back to their creator and ask, what is my life? Is there more to life than just living and dying? So I guess the question that I'll throw out to you, Matt, essentially is, does he sell this sense of empathy? Does Ridley Scott effectively sell this inversion of sympathy for the replicants in Blade Runner? Is, does that come through? 
You know what? I think he does, depending on which cut you see, not to get complicated. <laughs> right. We'll get into that, I'm sure. But my understanding is, going back to what all of you just said, is that the thing that Ridley really wanted to do with this film, which he had never seen before, except in Star Wars, which was quoted as saying, what's outside the window? Yep. This movie really, I think, answers that question. But going back to what was said earlier about how the world is dead and it's not really well explained, something about Blade Runner seems to me like the last 70s movie. Because in huh. the 70s, you've got Silent Running, which takes place in outer space where seemingly there's no more forests on the Earth. and right. the Forests are out there to be protected from whatever's happening here. Right. Soylent Green, which I think may be in the late 60s, early 70s, which also takes place in Los Angeles and is always during the day, pretty much. So maybe that's what it looks like during the day, I always wondered. And the Planet of the Apes film, where the apes haven't taken over yet, but everyone wears black turtlenecks. I forget <laughs> what that is. Conquest. Conquest. That, right. That's my favorite. <laughs> also takes place in Los Angeles, and seemingly all the animals, or at least the cats and dogs, have passed away in there. So I think the assumption is the world outside is dead and it's crappy had already been established, especially with the kind of people they assumed were going to go see this. So this is almost like the ultimate version I think, of that 70s mentality where they thought that everything was going to come to an end a lot sooner than it seemingly is. I mean, it's almost 2015 now. The movie takes place in 2019. Yeah. The replicants, I think most of them were born in 2016, so we're a couple of years away from them. I think it really, as far as the replicants being sympathetic, David Peebles is one of the screenwriters. I also wrote Lady Hawk in a movie called Blood of Heroes, which is kind of, you know, way in the future where there's absolutely nothing left. He wrote a movie called Soldier. Yes, yes, the unofficial sequel to Blade Runner. Right. <laughs> yeah, it definitely takes place in the same universe. And the original opening for Blade Runner, which was never shot, was supposed to take place on a trash prison planet of some kind where they the replicants escape and come to Earth. They didn't shoot it. Thankfully, I think they didn't shoot it, but they didn't shoot it for financial reasons. Right. I think the way that it starts, I think the movie's perfect, uh, the director's cut. Oh, well, we have it down now. <laughs> right. Well, so let's all go home. At least, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but in Soldier, even though the lead character is not a replicant, he is about as inhuman as a human can be. Yeah. And I think he actually is in a battle against replicants at some point because <laughs> he is in a Tannhauser Gate yeah. battle. Yeah. On right. on-screen graphic, they say yeah. he survived the Orion shoulder and Tannhauser gate. Yes. And then I also think there's a visual on-screen reference to Around Perdition's Flame as a callback to Wrath of Khan. But go ahead. Go ahead. There's also a spinner in the trash yes. somewhere. Yes. There's a broken down spinner. So far as the human beings in the Blade Runner universe versus the replicants, I mean, other than being, you know, trained to murder people and crushing people's skulls with their bare hands, <laughs> they almost seem more human to me because they want to live. Right. Who we see in the Blade Runner universe, humans, none of them really seem that alive, that vibrant. I'm so glad you brought that up. That is the next thing that I wanted to talk about. And that is the more human than human. Right. This is the motto for Tyrell's corporation. When Deckard finds out that Rachel's a replicant, he's kind of confused. He's like, wait, how can I not know what it is? Like, he doesn't understand this. Making the assumption that replicants in previous models knew that they were replicants, I assume. Well, they didn't have the memories built in. Right. So they knew that there was a certain point at which they've always been an adult. Right. But in addition to more human than human being reappropriated as, I think, the best white zombie song ever. <laughs> I think yes. this also points to my feelings about what I was saying about this inversion of pathos that happens. As far as the emotions that are displayed in this movie by the performances, the actors, I mean, 
The replicants, I think, have the most human reactions, the most animated and the most evocative reactions. Just go down the list, like Leon's weird sense of confusion and inadequacy in the VK test. Rachel's many breakdowns into tears. I think she's the only one who cries. Maybe perhaps Roy Batty. Pris's interactions with JF. There's the laughing on the street where it just the tone is completely changed at that scene and she sounds like a genuine person. Zora's reaction to Deckard trying to pull a fast one by being the fake identity. And then, of course, Batty's scenes at the very end. These emotions displayed by the replicants themselves are far more fluid and dynamic and more realistic than any of the humans in there. I mean, even if you're even looking at Deckard, this is some mild annoyance sometimes, and there's some yelps of pain. Maybe in the end he's got a little bit of concern, but by and large the humans in the film are very monotone and understated. I think that's a big part of it because emotions are something that's brand new to these replicants, and the reason that they have a lifespan of only four years before they break down, which is usually a pretty shady practice by any person who builds <laughs> hardware of any kind. Robots. Yeah. <laughs> that they don't want them to become more human than human. That's really right. just a tagline. Right. They know that these replicants are going to become more and more human and build in their own emotional reactions to things, including the sense of, you know what? My life fucking sucks. Right. And that more of them would go down the Roy Batty line of breaking free, coming to Earth. I mean, they're banned from Earth for what reason exactly? Because people are afraid of them. Well, it's original sin. I mean, let's be honest. It is a huge religious allegory. Roy Batty is the prodigal son. Tyrell is God. And their sin is being born as being who they are. Yeah, that they're basically at fault for being something, not doing something. Right. Roy Batty and Zora and Leon and Pris are fugitives not because they've committed some crime, aside from existing and wanting to not die at the end of four years. Right. That's their crime. And they're being well, hunted down. hang on, though. They did kill someone and then come back to Earth. They, they kill a lot of people bef they even before slaughter. they did. Yes. Yeah. They did slaughter a bunch of... But here's the point where we talk about the pathos and stuff. Do you believe that the sympathy for these characters is well pulled off? I will say yes, it is. And the reason I say that is because I'm rooting for Roy Batty in this movie. Mm. More and more, you say, oh, well, he killed all these people. How is this different from Django Unchained? Right. What possible recourse does Roy Batty have, aside from violence, when just for existing and wanting to go there, he has somebody not to arrest him, not to give him a trial, but to kill him and gun him down in the street? Right. He has no recourse. As he says, this is what it feels like to be a slave. You know, he is basically created to do shit work in, you know, they say, oh, great life on the outer colonies. Then why do they have robots who are built to die really fast doing all of that work? Right. These guys were combat guys. Why do they need combat guys if everything's great out there? Why do they need super janitors like Leon? Who can load nuclear rounds all day and night, right? Fucking Pris. Yeah. What is she? She's a pleasure model. Yeah. You would say, oh, well, she's a prostitute. No, prostitutes get paid. She gets used. Right. She's basically just a masturbation apparatus. Right. These are people who have shit lives. Not only that, they feel fear. They feel joy. I mean, they don't know how to deal with it yet because it's all new. And a really good example of that is that scene where Roy Batty has to tell Pris that Leon is dead. Look at his emotional reaction. Rutger Hauer is amazing in yeah, that yeah, moment. Yeah, he is. Because yep. it's like, ah, he doesn't know quite how to do it because he's never experienced grief before this moment. Right. This is his family. This is as close to it as he's ever gotten. And right. one of them was just killed, was just popped in the head. 
in the street and nobody gives a shit. And I'm thinking about the image, especially the first time that you ever really get that they're fleshy beings instead of robotic ones. So in Philip K. Dick's book, like whenever he takes his laser tube and bifurcates some head, you kind of see wires and stuff going out. Like they describe it as being mostly human looking on the outside, but full of wires and metal on the inside. When Zora goes down, I think that's the first time that you ever sort of look at it and you're like, oh shit, she's human in every way. She's basically completely indistinguishable from being human. And that's why, of course, the void comp test is there is that the last thing you could possibly tell the difference is whether or not they emit pheromones or their eyes dilate, right? Like everything else is entirely human. The point at which it breaks down to where there is fundamentally no difference between humans and the replicants is I think what continually draws this analogy, which is that they're not different. They are humans. The only thing that they are, they're just slightly different. The only thing they're different is they happen to be a little better at stuff and they don't live as long. And the reason that we don't let them live as long is because they're good at stuff and we feel threatened by them. Right. We're happy with them being really strong as long as they're tools. And the reason that they fail the Voight comp test is we don't let them live that long to develop those emotional reactions. So when I say I root for Roy Batty, yeah, he killed a bunch of people. But again, when you're in that sort of system where you are a slave, you're not going to get any fair hearing. There's no nonviolent way to resolve that, to assert your own humanity. This is somebody who's on the run. And again, when I make the comparison to Django Unchained, I don't give a fuck when he kills slave holders and shoots people who are trying to murder him for being something. Mm -hmm. So in a weird sense, like we did in the radio versus the mailbag question about rooting for, quote unquote, the bad guy. I am rooting for Roy Batty. I want him to survive and get more life. Being the only person in the group who actually doesn't think Blade Runner is the best thing since Slice Replicant (laughs) or whatever you might think is the best thing. It's really fascinating to hear how you guys perceive the replicants and sort of perceive the world. I will agree, certainly in the characterizations in the movie, the replicants do appear more alive than the humans. The humans are, I think you use the word monotone, and I think that that's very much true. They're just kind of living. But I didn't feel when watching the movie that I got the sense that anyone but Roy Batty really achieved sort of humanity by the end of the movie. You certainly saw when he goes back to the apartment afterwards, after it's all over, and he asks Rachel, you know, do you love me? And she's just very drab about it. She's, I love you. I trust you. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, whatever. We'll we'll, we'll leave, I guess. That's cool. And so it's really fascinating to me because I watched and I, I looked for all the moments where the replicants weren't getting emotion correct. They were trying. I mean, you you referenced the laughter when Pris is caught outside by J.F. Sebastian, and she laughs, but you can tell it's a forced laugh. Right. It sounds alive for a second, but you can tell it's like, oh, I'm supposed to laugh now to make this guy comfortable so that I can get in the apartment and so that Roy can come in and we can all go kill our creator. Right. And you see that kind of throughout the movie. And one of the reasons I look for that is because you talked about how the replicants in the movie seem to be very human in a way that they probably aren't in the book. But in the book, you never know who actually is the replicant. Right. They have suspicions. In the movie, they're actually clues that they're replicants. And they write up front. It's like, here's the file. They are replicants. There's no question. They're out. They are replicants. Just go ahead and go kill them. Right. And for me, that actually dehumanized them a little bit. Just for me, it's really interesting that you guys, who are not devotees of the book, but devotees of the movie, actually really focus on the replicants as, I wouldn't say perfect, but these well-realized emotional beings. Well, and like I said, I think the only reason why you do is by contrast. 
I mean, yeah. by contrast, Gaff and Bryant and Deckard and Holden, they're not paragons of emotion. Certainly not. They just are sort of tired with life. I think the prevalence of alcohol as being the one thing that I, I heard about Mad Men, which was really interesting. One of the things that was commented on about that show was a depiction of people who were drinking all of the time, who were drunk most of the time. Actually. Anesthetizing themselves. They are anesthetizing the their feelings. Essentially, what they're doing is they're avoiding feeling and having alcohol as a substitute for feelings. But Deckard obviously drinks to avoid emotions, right? He drinks at any time, anytime something is so overwhelming. So yeah, in a world that it seems to be dead to emotions, yeah, you're looking for authenticity in things where they're virtual. But I mean, that is the big overarching question about what's real. Is just trying for the emotion real? Is simply trying too much, trying too hard for the emotion real? Or is it just real in and of itself? Is the trying make it real? That's the hard part is because we're all flesh and blood humans and we fake emotions too sometimes. We have moments where we use subterfuge. So when I look at the scene with Pris basically faking a meet cute with JF Sebastian to get into his house to use it as a base of operations, I could see a human doing that exact same thing. In a weird way, I didn't feel that it made that moment more artificial. I felt it made it more real, that this was a sense of them understanding people and knowing how to use people. The only moment in the movie where I really kind of turn against Roy Batty is when he kills J.F. Sebastian, right. who even after learning who these people are and what it is that they're after, sympathizes with them. He's somebody who helps program these creations and has a lot of sympathy for them, not only because he lives in the house of nightmare toys, <laughs> but most of his friends that he hangs out with are basically replicants. And Jesus Christ, the, the teddy bear soldier and the Kaiser dwarf are essentially... To me, if there's anybody who has a recourse to turn on their master and kill humans, it's those two. Right, right. But in the case of J.F. Sebastian, his murder is what really kind of makes me turn on Batty. Because with Batty basically having that moment where everything he's done, and as he said, he's done questionable things, mm -hmm. which to me mm -hmm. says that he's not doing them without any emotional response. Right. That he has some amount of empathy there whether he would call it that or not, but he knows what he's doing is, as he says, questionable. And he has a lot of regrets and he wants right. it to be worth something. So at that point when it's not, he not only kills his creator, but he kills J.F. Sebastian, yeah. who's been nothing but a friend to him. Well, there's also some of J.F. in Roy, as he says earlier in the film. And, you know, when you kill God, I don't know why J.F. was removed from the picture, but it seems like Roy is the leader of the replicants, but being the leader, I think he's also like the rawest nerve of all of them. He's mm -hmm. the one who's seemingly the most emotional. Maybe he is seemingly the strongest and most intelligent out of all of them. And that moment when he's coming down in the elevator, having killed his god and, and JF, who's a demigod, who's part of the process of him being alive, it seems like this is when he seems elated, but I always thought that he knew he had gone too far, but yeah. there was no going back. That look on his face definitely betrays that, for sure. So, uh, I, we, we, wow, we've talked a lot about more about empathy than I than I thought we were actually going to. But it's the I, whole point of the book. I mean, yeah. it, it is the whole point of the book. I mean, and of course, they leave out mood organs, which I would say, like as I said before, alcohol is the substitute for real emotions, as mood organs are in Dick's book. And then, of course, mercerism, which unfortunately, having to cast a whole topography of a religion in a movie like this probably would be hard to depict. But it was important because Mercer was a, was a replicant, right? Or was Mercer a replicant? 
It was all a hoax. It was a hoax by replicants to fool the foolish humans for believing in something so stupid. I didn't read the book, so you're going to have to explain Mercerism to me. We should leave it on the table because, well, Mercerism is a religion that's only experienced by people that can plug into this virtual reality where they become this prophet. I think he has some message behind him. It's basically a Sisyphean kind of thing where Mercer is struggling up a hill and people throw rocks at him. And so you feel empathy for the plight of him struggling through this. And you feel all the other people struggling with him at the same time. Mercerism is important to the book, but it's actually of all the things that were cut for the movie. It's the thing I can probably forgive the most. You could have still told the same story that Dick told without Mercerism. Right. So just one further element to talk about empathy, to create a place for humans in this world to experience empathy in in a world where there is very little left. But I want to move on to, I think, yes... Blade Runner will be talked about a lot because of this questioning between us and them of artificial and and real. But I think the setting and the way that it's visualized is probably the biggest enduring legacy, at least to filmmaking. Neil Gaiman once said of Blade Runner that what Blade Runner did was create a dystopic, inhospitable world. It's dark and grungy and you wouldn't want to live there, but you'd love to go there. Ridley Scott said that Blade Runner involved full-bore imagination. Deckard's universe had to be expanded into credibility. That's probably the hardest thing I've done because there was nothing to borrow from. Ridley Scott was creating this from scratch. And I remember watching a clip of Harrison Ford on David Letterman at around the time, probably when he was on this press junket prior to the release. And he said, oh, it's a movie that takes place in the future. He was trying to explain this to an audience who knew him as Indiana Jones and Han Solo. It's set in the future, but it's a recognizable one. And sure, it's 2019, but that's not too far in the future from 1982. There's flying cars, there's lots of buildings, there's lots of Asian people and Chinese and Japanese writing all over the place, but you still retain the sense that you're still on Earth. And I think building that, as Ridley Scott said, retrofitting the future was a very unique, at that point in time, way of trying to create something that was both futuristic and familiar at the same time. And I want to know if you guys got the same sense looking at it. Of course. Absolutely. For me, certainly, that's the most brilliant achievement of the movie is the futurism, where you do actually feel like it's Earth, but it's very much the future. And the way that it was crafted across sort of every scene and the insides of the buildings and the outsides of the buildings and the shades and the sunsets. I mean, even when they're putting the shade down at the Tyrell Corporation, which visually looks like it should be beautiful, you really get the sense of it's sad. It's kind of dark and dreary and a little bit foreboding. And that's the prettiest part of that entire world, is that (laughs) office building. Oh, I thought the prettiest part of the world is flying over lots of huge towers spewing fire and smoke into the air. I thought that was the prettiest part. No, the prettiest part is at the end where they're going all through the lush fields (laughs) and the beautiful mountains and the lakes in the dead world. Uh, The Shining. Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Those shots are leftover shots Kubrick did from The Shining. Yes. I really, really hated that looking back on it because it undid the world they created. And it's like, well, why don't people just leave the fucking city if it looks that nice outside of it? I really love the world that was created by Blade Runner. Ridley Scott did something kind of amazing, which is him along with Katsuhiro Otomo, who in the same year was doing the manga Akira, Mm -hmm. basically created a new subgenre of science fiction called cyberpunk. Like we've mentioned before, the difference between this and, say, Buck Rogers or Star Trek or Star Wars is that it's very much an extrapolation from the present and even some bits of the past. The world that we have in Blade Runner is clearly like when we look at the Bradbury building, which is the hotel that J.F. Sebastian lives in. Old things have new things built on top of it. Those things get old and they build more stuff on top of that. I mean, you don't have this 
sanitized vision of the future where people travel around in these sterile silver tubes and wear these jumpsuits with jetpacks <laughs> and a picture of Saturn on their chest and the white pompadour. This is not that kind of clean sci-fi. The buildings all wear their guts on the outside. You have air ducts and there's trash on fucking everything in yeah. this movie. Yeah. Deckard's apartment has trash all over the floor when they go into the police station. Bryant's office is sort of this little building inside of a larger building, and you see the top of it as you're coming in. There's just trash all over the top of it. Right. <laughs> all over the top of Bryant's office, right. Just yes. garbage everywhere. It's yes. like when you see those rocks and trash on top of old gas stations. Right. It has that kind of vibe to it. There's a grit to this world. And what I love about it, too, is that I'm a big fan of crime noir, the crime noir anachronisms that you have throughout this movie. There are ceiling fans all throughout this movie, and that's something that we don't really have anymore with air conditioners. There's Venetian blinds and these blades of light coming in through those Venetian blinds and the ceiling fans cutting through them. Everyone fucking smokes and is drinking out of those little square glasses. Right, right. I really love that part of it, just the character walking through a really kind of ugly world. And that's the beautiful thing about detective characters is that they get to exist and get to belong in all parts of the world. Deckard gets to hang out in the Tyrell office, but yeah. he's the only one in that office. He's the only one that can move between the two worlds. Exactly. Right? That he can go down and start investigating this scale that he finds, which is later found to be Zora's snake. No one in that office could do that investigation. They would stick out like a sore thumb. But the beauty of the detective character is that they can go between those worlds. So there are these elements of old movies, old crime stories, old things from a different genre being injected into science fiction right. and making them work seamlessly. And creating the world has, for film buffs, and I know I'm going to have to lean on you, Matt, there is so much that is recorded about the creating and visualizing the world. I honestly don't know where to start, except for maybe probably the biggest achievement, aside from the special effects, is creating Ridleyville. Well, that is true. Most of the film, the practical shooting, the actual non-special effects post-production stuff was shot here in L.A. at Universal Studios. And it seems so old-timey that it's basically shot on a back lot. This movie seems to me like it's a piece of granite. It doesn't look pieced together like a normal film even though it's obvious that every shot is staged and full of detail and like was mentioned before, how everything has sort of been abandoned and retrofied and retrofilled, the look of the film seemed to be originally Sid Mead, who's a futurist, mm -hmm. who was the guy who designed the spinners and a lot of the more sort of... He was a product designer before. Right, for General Motors. Yeah. The images that he created, I mean, if we lived in that world now, I mean, I'm sure we'd be sick of it, but <laughs> that, like everything, that world, at least a glimmer of his vision was adapted in especially the more spacey elements or sci-fi stuff, you know, typical flying cars and Tyrell's buildings and pieces of technology and the white comp machine, things like that. But the gritty, dirty, they called them Ridley tubes, which was just right, adding right. tubes and any kind of additional extraneous abandoned technologies sort of seemingly came from Mobius, who's, I you know, believe, a French comic writer and was best known for doing a lot of stuff in heavy metal magazine in yep. the early 80s. And that was clearly an influence for the fifth element. Of course. And I think Luc Besson wrote Fifth Element was a 400-page screenplay when he was like 14 years old because yes. he had no idea what a script looked like, <laughs> <laughs> which is great, you know, because I didn't know what they looked like either as, as a 14-year-old. <laughs> 
Mobius also did the, sorry, just for a little treat, Mobius was the guy who did all of the production art for Jodorowsky's The Abandoned Legendary Dune Project. Mobius was the guy who did all of the concept art for the Dune that never was. Right, and there's a new documentary about that out now that's supposedly very good. It's beautiful. I recommend it. Salvador Dali is the emperor of the universe. <laughs> yes. Not <laughs> worth the price of admission. Not and... bad. But I think we're touching on something that's very interesting about the design is Ridley Scott comes from a design perspective. He ran his own advertising studio. Lawrence G. Paul is, of course, the production designer that was on there. And then you have Sid Mead. And of course, you have some inspiration from Mobius. This is a movie that is made by art directors. This is an art director's movie. Three different people contributed to making the world, which then, of course, gets passed along to the set crew to build the set. But it is a designer's movie. That's absolutely correct. And it shows in every frame. Except for the one shot at the end with the dove, which was a <laughs> horrible reshoot, I guess, that was done in England while they were all fired off the picture or right, something. Right. Except for that one, which is, you know, it makes sense that uh, we're going to see some daylight at some point. Yeah, every shot in this film, you can freeze frame it, put it in a frame on your wall if you're that kind of person. And no one will say, you know, they might say why, but they're not going to say that that looks horrible. There's no freeze frame I can find that isn't worthy of framing. Yeah, I will. I mean, the only one I would choose is at the very beginning, they had a concept of making the blasters black hole guns. Mm-hmm. So it actually, what this, does that mean? It I don't know. It was some super heady concept where they thought that instead of firing bullets, it would fire like some little singularity. Negative matter. Yeah, or something like that. And you can actually see it when Leon shoots under the table and it comes up through the table and through his coffee mug and into Holden they actually did the effect on that shot. And you can only see it by watching freeze framing and watching it. And it just looks kind of junky. They kind of just black this little piece of glowing black thing that just goes. It would have dated the movie, I think now, if there was a, you know, ray gun pew pew. Yeah, a laser tube, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of things like that. Maybe it's just by luck. But going with Deckard's gun, which for me was, you know, a lot of people, Adam Savage is known as to be a nut about Deckard's gun. Right. Right. That in itself was, oh, look, it's not a pew-pew laser pistol. I mean, and ironically, it's actually a Charter Arms 44 Special, which is the exact same gun that the Son of Sam used. I don't know what? if that's important. <laughs> right. Not the same one, but the same model. <laughs> How'd they get it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, you know, they borrowed it. You but, know that the Deckard's gun actually shows up in the game Fallout New Vegas. It does. That's right. And it's just it called does. That Gun. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently it's pretty good. I, it may even put you through a wall like it does. <laughs> so sure. I really loved it. And I guess I never really took it as a pew-pew gun or a black hole gun. I just took it as like a really high-powered handgun. I, I think they abandon it pretty quickly. And, and you can tell every time that the shots hit the wall or something, they have like this mini explosion. It's like the shells are just like supercharged ballistic explosion. But yeah. I think they're referring to the fact that in the book there was a laser tube. Yeah. So it was sort of like this small pinpoint laser that you could fire. And I do imagine that if you tried to put that into the movie, that probably would have dated it pretty horribly. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty goofy. Holden survives, by the way. Oh, yes. He was supposed to have, Decker was supposed to meet him in some kind of cryo situation where he he's in an iron con- lung. No, he's basically in a futuristic yeah, iron lung. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I guess those scenes were shot in that the Leon gun is a real gun that they has four barrels and they rigged it so that they would all go off at the same time. That's why there's that 
ridiculously cool uh, muzzle flash, which kind of makes up for the lack of the laser beam or whatever it was going to be. <laughs> right, and, right. and Holden's got his gun in his hand, too, if you look closely. When he's flying through the wall, he was doing the Han shot first, but he failed. Holden is not able to Han Solo them, that's for <laughs> right. sure. He got, he's the Greedo. He got greedo <laughs> yes, oh. uh, I was looking for talking about people getting shot and getting their ass kicked. Can I toss a little bit of Go respect ahead. Harrison Ford's way? Yeah. I just want to say that nobody in film takes a beating like Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. Some of the looks on his face in this movie when he's being thrown or tossed around or beaten up are pretty painful. Yeah, that's the thing is that you look at a lot of action movies out there and you look at a lot of performances and a lot of actors really try really hard to retain their dignity while getting beaten up. <laughs> they just want to and they want to growl and they want to get up slowly and maybe bleed a little bit. But they don't actually want to show that they're scared or that they're hurt. And the thing I really love about Harrison Ford, he does it here. He does it in the Indiana Jones movies a lot. He looks fucking terrified when he's getting his ass kicked. Yeah. When Zora is choking him with his own tie, he's making these choking noises. He's flailing around. It looks like he's about to die. When Leon's about to gouge his eyes out, he looks fucked. He looks dazed when he gets smacked across the face. Yeah. And it really sells how strong these guys are in a way that most people who want to look tough in these movies nowadays don't. But the really big one is him running away from Roy Batty in the Bradbury building at the end. He sells that because he looks fucking terrified. Yeah. The scream he does when he resets his broken fingers, (laughs) the way he's climbing up that building and pushing himself through the rotted floorboards right. he looks like this guy is gonna kill me and he sells it like a horror movie yeah that's so interesting so uh, i had this section labeled deckard the scumbag because for someone who's a hero i mean deckard is definitely an anti-hero i mean he's nearly a textbook definition of an anti-hero but he is of course the person through whom we are supposed to filter the movie just like any other noir movie although this doesn't follow strictly a noir formula for the hero In a noir movie, the hero is in every scene, every single scene, and Deckard is not in every single scene here. That's why it's neo-noir. He is an alcoholic. He's a borderline rapist. He shoots people in the back. We only ever see him shoot women, also. Deckard is not someone to idolize. In fact, we see how weak he is, we see how he gets the shit beat out of him, and we also see how intentionally hurtful he is to someone like Rachel. Oh, yeah, you were talking about when he tells her that she's a replicant? Right. And he just casually brings up things from her past that he couldn't know, but it's in her programming. And she realizes that her memories are a lie. And he just casually does. He does regret it, though. True. You can see the look on his face. He could just throw her out with that. But he's just like, oh, wow, I'm a bastard. I better (laughs) offer her a drink. But I mean, this belies two things about the way Blade Runner was made. One is there's obviously some way in which Deckard is written, right? There's a way in which he's written as a hard-boiled asshole. The other is that Harrison Ford was not happy about being on set. He clashed violently with the director, and really filming this movie was brutal to everyone involved. So he hated this movie. He hated being on this movie almost every night where they had to film all night long, usually in the rain. Lots of the outdoor scenes are in the rain. Even the indoor scenes are in the rain, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, he didn't like this movie. What is it? Was a quote here from the Boston Globe in 1991 that Harrison Ford is willing to admit that he's not fond of Blade Runner, Ridley Scott's futuristic cult favorite. Quote, I played a detective who did no detecting, he says. There was nothing for me to do but stand around and give some vain attempt to give focus to Ridley's sets. I think some, a lot of people enjoy it, and that's their prerogative. So, and this also kind of gives you a little insight into the super poor performance of the voiceover, where you know that in some level, Harrison Ford is a professional actor, but he's also over it. He's also completely and totally done. He does sound a bit like he's phoning it in in those... A bit? Yeah, just a little bit. (laughs) 
But both of those two things lend to a character that you really don't really empathize all that much with. And like you said, sometimes you don't really want to root for him. He's just kind of getting his ass kicked, thrown around, falling into these situations and coming out on top by the skin of his teeth. But I didn't want Batty to kill him. I wanted him to fail at his mission of murdering them Hmm. and gunning them Hmm. down in the street. But I didn't want the replicants to kill Deckard. And I didn't think he was a complete reprobate. I mean, there are scenes where you see that he has a physical reaction to killing. He calls it the shakes. Right. And if you notice in the voiceover version, one of the few things that I like in that is that he refers to it as killing. He's the only person who says the word killer. Oh, and everyone says retirement. Which is very humanizing for him. And if you look at the way Bryant talks about it, I love that actor who plays Bryant, by the way. He makes everything he does just a little bit sleazy. (laughs) So when he's just give me some of that Blade Runner magic, it's just like, I want to see you kill someone, boy. <laughs> it's really, really off He's a one-man slaughterhouse. Right. Yeah, right. he like gets off on it. And notice, it's not just the euphemism that everyone used, which is retiring. Like, we can't even say that we just murdered somebody. Right. We just basically retired it like an old iPhone. Right. But he actually goes a bit further. Bryant actually refers to it as, you know, he'll air them out. Right. You know, riddle them with holes. That's fucked up. And I do like that little contrast with him in that moment, but you could have fit it in the script somewhere. But the fact that he does react the way that he does to killing somebody, even someone that he knows is a replicant, is humanizing to him in a way that you don't get with Bryant. Bryant doesn't give a shit. Hmm. This is basically just Hmm. a toaster that ran loose and is killing people in the city, and he just wants to cover it up nice and quiet-like. Right. But isn't that what it is, though? I mean, from his perspective, Leon is a, a forklift. That is true, that he's basically run free and, you know, got to put it down. It doesn't really matter. It's a piece of equipment. I know that this is an old hat and we're probably going to get to this anyways, but the big stereotypical it's deader than dead type argument about this movie, about whether Deckard himself is a replicant. Sure. Let's open it right up. That's a new argument. <laughs> hey. Wait, wait, wait. Hey. No, what, no, maybe we should lead in on Micah's <laughs> thoughts here because it seems like Micah's not interested in talking about the seminal question of the movie. For me, in the movie, it doesn't really matter whether he's a replicant or not. I don't think it has, it doesn't add or detract to the movie whether he is or he isn't. Certainly he's, as you guys have mentioned, a little cold, a little bumbling. But, I mean, for me, when I watch the movie, everyone feels a little, except for Roy Batty, I'll give you that, everyone feels a little bit, I guess you'd say shallow, and Deckard more so than anyone else. But I don't think it matters whether he's a replicant or not. What would that change in the story? It certainly wouldn't change very much, but I mean, I'll tap your expertise as someone who probably knows the dick book better than I do. They have one mention in this where Rachel says, upon learning she's a replicant, she says, have you ever taken that test yourself? That's Mm. a central part of understanding Rick Deckard's character and adding a little bit of the sort of insane kind of world craziness is that at a certain point in time in the book, Rick Deckard gets arrested or not really arrested, but accosted by another bounty hunter. They don't call them Blade Runners in Mm -hmm. uh, the book. And his state of being a replicant is questioned. And he's not even sure if the test is going to work on people who he's asking to. He goes to mm-hmm. a police station that he's never been to before and meets people that he's never been to. And they claim to have never heard of him or his mm-hmm. commanding officer. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that we never actually really see Harrison Ford's Deckard question his existence. Well, it depends on which cut you're talking about, not to be nerdy about it, but I will. The original version of the film that came out with the voiceover The voiceover, if he is a replicant, he wouldn't be talking. The voiceover, he's talking about his ex-wife. And he has an interior monologue through the whole film. So in that version of the film, he's not. But in the director's cut of the film, and Ridley Scott himself has said that Deckard is a replicant, the slight differences change that he is. 
And right. the director's cut, he is. Right. And the original cut, he isn't. And it doesn't make much of a difference. But when you add, he has this seemingly a memory implant of a memory that can exist, which is this unicorn. And Gaff knows of it because he presents him at the very end with a little origami unicorn. Right. Those and the director saying he is one and some eye light situations sure. where his eyes look, which can be or cannot be a mistake. But depending on which version of the film you're watching, he either is or isn't. But ultimately, Deckard is alive as the replicants are. Hmm. But I'd still argue that it doesn't really matter whether he's a replicant or not. Oh, no, it doesn't. One of the things that for me, again, as someone who's read the book and watched the movie, is that the book successfully blurs the line between who is human and who isn't. Like, very much so, because you don't know. You really don't know. And over time, you actually see why Deckard would develop emotions for replicants and why replicants could be just as human as everyone else, even potentially more human. And because the way that all of the replicants and all of the humans, again, except Roy Batty in the movie, all of them are kind of flat and shallow, that it doesn't really develop that. Like, at the very end of the movie, I don't really care about either Rachel or Deckard. It doesn't matter. Certainly, if you watch the two versions of the movie, like in one, they live happily ever after, and it's a right. you know wonderful story. And in right. the other one, they're going to go on the run, and who knows whether she's going to die in a year or two years or whatever. But in either case, I don't really care what happens to them hmm. because of that. And so from that, I would say it doesn't really matter whether hmm. he's a replicant or not. I think that, like you said, Micah, the answer isn't really that important, but I think the question is supremely important because it gets to the core theme of the movie, which is, what is a person? I think the thing that I got out of this is that replicants are people too, and that these are people who can feel fear, who can think of the future, who are clearly sentient. And what we find with the question about whether Deckard is a human or not is that this character, who's never doubted his own humanity in much the same way that Rachel never has, suddenly he's got that little bit of doubt. He sees something in the real world created by Gaff, that little origami unicorn that nobody could have seen unless they'd looked at the dot matrix printout that probably goes of his dreams or whatever. I really like that little bit of doubt because in the original version, without that unicorn dream, all we have is the sense that, oh, he was there, he knew she was there, that this guy who worked for the police station let a replicant go. And that's all we really get out of it. And the voiceover superfluously just tells us that. We don't really need that bit. But I think the very question of putting that doubt in everyone's mind, because I know that Ridley Scott says that the unicorn proves that he is a replicant in that director's cut version, but I didn't really get it that way. I don't want it to be definitive. I no. want that big chunk of doubt at the end to end the movie on. Harrison Ford said in interviews prior that it wasn't solved, that that question was not decided while they were filming it. And so therefore he was basing his performance as Deckard without knowing that. Well, when the film originally came out, I saw it in the theater. I have older brothers, and they thankfully brought me to the movie without my parents knowing, <laughs> which is great. Yeah. And it was the first movie I was aware of before it came out. In oh. other words, I Whoa. had an older brother who had like a Starlog magazine subscription, and it was like this thing with Han Solo's in Indiana Jones is coming out or something. Hmm. And there was drawings and whatnot, and it just looked amazing. So we went to go see it. And they handed out a comic book version of it, which I may have somewhere still. But at the time, there was no is he, isn't he. Those questions were not bandied about that I was aware of in the press or, you know, in, in filmic circles or whatever until the home video thing happened. And maybe even until that director's cut came out. Right. And then that's what it was all about. 
But before that, it was, you know, he's a hard-boiled detective, and this is what he's doing. And as Harrison Ford said, he, he doesn't do any detecting. He does a lot. You know, he doesn't a lot of detecting, but he does plenty of detecting, I think. You know, he goes to Leon's apartment, and, you know, and I think that's an interesting element of Leon, too. He's childlike, and he has these mementos that he wants to keep and pictures of his family and things like that. And then he goes to the guy who sells the snakes and the Asian woman who shows the close-up of, I mean, you need a uh, electron microscope hmm. to tell if someone's a replicant or not, basically. And I think that's what you were saying earlier, which is really, I mean, how could you tell if you didn't have a Boyd comp machine or right. one of those little noodle shop slash electron microscope setups? <laughs> <laughs> you would not know if someone was one or not. And, you know, there's an element where the sequence when Deckard's being shown the videos of the escaped replicants and he's explaining everything to them. And I think I freeze framed those little data points with their, you know, intelligence strength levels and things a million times out of wore out my VHS copy. <laughs> but at some point, you know, Deckard's sitting there and Brian's explaining to him and I don't know the exact line, but he says something like they want more life or something. And Deckard looks at him like, what do you mean? And he says, oh, you know, for your lifespan. Like, this is a new idea. Right, right. The Nexus 6 is so good that it can't be built to last because they're more human than human. Just like an iPhone. Right. But Decker <laughs> thinks this is, his face is like, huh, hmm, he's never heard this before. He has this sort of scratching his temple moment. And I think it seems in hindsight, if we're pretending he's a replicant, he's saying, wow, thank God I don't have that. Yeah, and another thing to notice is that his post-kill reaction, the shakes as he calls it, when you know that he's a replicant, puts that in a very different light. And it looks right. a lot more like Roy Batty responding to the death of Leon, where it's an emotional reaction that he doesn't quite know how to handle. Mm -hmm. And it's something jarring to him and it kind of throws him off and he has to sedate himself with alcohol. That's another one of the visuals I love in that movie where he just got his ass fucking kicked, takes a shot glass and then a little trickle of blood goes down into it. <laughs> I really love that Deckard moment. Deckard does do a lot of bleeding in this movie, an awful lot of bleeding. Oh, go ahead, Micah. Oh, I was just going to ask, why do you guys think that there's any question in the movie about who's a replicant and who's not? Well, How does the movie set that up? It may not actually set it up. Well, it may be an, an, a nascent question left over from the book, right? Because those are themes of is he or is he not? I mean, in the book, you don't know. You really have no idea. So the very questioning may come from the source material, but the fact that we keep mulling this over, this everything is deliberate idea, where if you're putting on your sort of film analysis hat and you, you're sort of hyper-attentive to details and you want to create these large, grand theories, I mean, one that is as layered as this in what I would say very obscure narrative elements, like this is a difficult movie to understand. It's a very difficult movie to get the first time through. In fact, I would even argue it probably warrants at least seeing twice because of how dense certain things are and how it does not hold your hand to lead you through stuff. It doesn't have enough voiceover. It d certainly does oh not have enough voiceover. Oh. It's tempting to want to overanalyze elements, and we are probably doing a little overanalysis here. In the reality of this film, it's a collaborative work. It's like theater. It's not just one person. It's many different people. And so you cannot assume that everything that shows up in the frame is actually relevant to the vision of Ridley Scott as an auteur. Well, this is one of the rare films, I think. Most movies, I think, are, are easily poured over too much. And if you make a movie, you have an idea, and getting your exact idea on the screen is so rare mm. that reading into things and saying, well, this has to mean something or this doesn't, a lot of the times it doesn't. But this film in particular, which is why I have no problem in, in going over it in such detail, if it was something else, I might not, is because I honestly think this film is one of the few examples where everything really is something. 
Hmm. And it is a little bit more than the sum of its parts. I was just rereading the book Future Noir, which is a really great book about you know the making of this film. And even though it was difficult, and even though it wasn't the original intention of the film eventually evolved in what we have today, it seems like what we see on the screen is really worth pouring over. We could sit here for an hour. I mean, I'm watching Roy crush Tyrell's head right now. <laughs> As you do on a lazy Sunday afternoon, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and behind him, there are eagles and owls and certain types of esoteric symbols. And why are those things there? And why does he live in a giant pyramid and all these things? And you could easily say, well, they went to the prop house and they threw some crap in the background. <laughs> and nine times out of ten, you'd be right. Oh, there go his eyes. So we know which one this is. There's blood shooting ever. So, <laughs> you know, his bed is a pope's bed. It's actually a pope's bed. Huh. A pope had a bed, and then they ended up using him in the film, and Tyrell is in his little puffy robe in there doing his taxes or whatever. So I think it's okay in this particular case to sort of really get into the nitty-gritty and, and talk about what's on the screen, because they did make very specific choices, and it is because of what you said earlier, Casey, this is a designer's film. I think you guys are actually digging right into the reason why I have a different reaction to the film than you do, mm. is that I think Ridley Scott clearly is fantastic at setting up great visuals. Like, mm -hmm. the movie is cinematically brilliant. It's wonderful to watch, as are pretty much all of his movies. But it falls flat for me on the storytelling. And to some degree, that's the difference between the two mediums, right? In a book, the only thing you have is the storytelling. You have to create the visuals within the reader's head. And mm -hmm. you have to use every weapon in your arsenal to try and make that be true. And that's one of the reasons why it's very, very hard to adapt a popular book or one that anyone loves is because whatever your vision is might vary just enough from whatever the other person's vision is that they just are allergic to your vision of the story. Sure. But I think this goes a little bit farther in that Ridley Scott, and maybe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but in my research, I couldn't find, I don't think he ever read the book. He didn't. And I think that matters, right? There are a lot of things that he got right and would have worked really well in actually trying to tell the same story in the book. But there are a bunch of things that he got very different because he was going for a certain look. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I have a very different lens on the movies, because I feel like the storytelling falls down, even as I appreciate how beautiful the movie is. But the movie isn't really an adaptation at all. If it was the attempt to adapt Philip K. Dick's book, then yeah, it's a failure. But it's clearly just inspired mm -hmm. by the initial production of the film. They were so far away from what the book was. And even the first screenplay was so far away from what the book was. And we're talking, I think it was in like 1977 when the sort of initial process happened or something around there. Right after Star Wars, some of the people said, well, this is interesting. We should maybe explore these type of worlds, which is an interesting choice to make you see Star Wars and think, ah, Philip K. Dick, <laughs> which is kind of cool, right? But yeah, I understand if you love the book that this movie would be disappointing, but it isn't right to say that Blade Runner is an attempted, failed adaptation of, his, of the book. Oh, and I totally agree with that, actually. I would never actually claim that, but a lot of other people do claim that it's actually an adaptation of the book. And because I know it's so different, that's one of the reasons why I rail against that. Mm -hmm. I agree with you sure. completely that it is very based on the book. And I think one of the reasons why it could have been an adaptation with almost no changes, I would argue that all that had to be done in order to make almost completely the same movie and tell Philip K. Dick's story is remove the number of people. There are too many people in the movie. 
the scenes in the bars, the scenes on the streets. There are just too many people. There's not the desolation. And spend just a little bit of time on the sympathy and the empathy for animals. Hmm. Hmm. And you could have made almost exactly the same movie, same set, same everything. And I think for me, that's one of the reasons, too, why I do have this personal reaction to it is that it's close enough. There's some of it that would have been a perfect visualization of the book and some of it that's totally different. We can talk a lot about we have talked a lot about what we've loved and what's challenging about it. And I really want to dig into the parts about the movie that are failures, because there clearly are some things that make this objectively not a perfect movie. Pacing. Pacing. The first thing that I hear from a lot of people who try to watch Blade Runner the first time is that they fall asleep during it. And this is I a, did that last night. Oh, <laughs> no, I've, I've fallen, fallen asleep to it many times, but not for that reason, not on the first time. It was mostly just an opium haze. Y- of course, yes. I think that the pacing is, as I've described it before, downright glacial in some parts of the movie. Does this pacing problem work for it or against it when you realize that Ridley Scott was not trying to make an action movie akin to Alien or Star Wars? I think the thing that works the most against Blade Runner is that it came out after Star Wars. Hmm. I think that when we talked about those movies from the 1970s before, things like Silent Running, things like The Omega Man, Soylent Green, those had a slower, more morose pace to them as well. But there's something about that decade of the 1970s that a lot of films came out. Easy Rider had that same kind of pace to it. It was not a happy movie. The unhappy ending. Exactly. That was sort of an expectation that the hero is going to die or there's going to be something emotionally unsatisfying, that this is something that's been burning for a long time and it's finally happening and it's going to be depressing as shit. But I think Star Wars changed something, which is it was a movie that came out in the 70s that was about good guys and bad guys and fun space adventure. And the fact that Blade Runner also starred Harrison Ford, who was in those movies, was in Indiana Jones, who's fighting Nazis and punching guys and doing these incredible acts of daring do. And Star Wars is swashbuckling adventure against an oppressive evil empire and good guys doing fun things and swinging across chasms on ropes and getting into sword fights and lasers and explosions and Wookiees and monsters. (laughs) It seems like science fiction and what we expected from it was very different after Star Wars came out. Right. And that was the expectation they went in. Ooh, Harrison Ford's going to be a new science fiction movie. Dustin Hoffman was the last major actor to almost be cast as Deckard. That's the 70s movie then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I definitely wouldn't be here to talk about that movie. <laughs> well, you know, that's the pre-Star Wars movie. With Harrison Ford, yeah, the expectations were that it was going to be fun. <laughs> Quote, fun, unquote. <laughs> I, right, right, right. I think he thought the same thing, and he didn't have fun making it. Hmm. There are a lot of like, personal reasons for that, I'm sure, but him and Sean Young, and like Casey said that earlier, the director had some difficulties. But maybe it, we wouldn't be talking about it today if it was a Dustin Hoffman film. But I think if Harrison Ford wasn't cast in the movie, I don't think this movie would have ever been made. Hmm. Interesting thought. I think probably the one part about the film that, if we're, if we're going to talk about failures, if I'm going to talk about something in the movie that genuinely doesn't work, the last time that I saw it in the theater, I, I had a friend who is a sound editor in LA who was actually up here visiting and so we saw the final cut. And he, listening to it from a sound design perspective, he's like, the only thing that didn't really fit was the saxophone, sexy oh, saxophone music. But I think, <laughs> but I think yeah. that is a distraction because the love scene is actually in, a, in sort of Blade Runner aficionado circles. It's called the hate scene because of how little love there appears to be between the two actors. It really is the most disturbing, even more disturbing than people's eyes being poked out, is basically the guy trying to rape the robot girl. 
I mean, to refresh everyone's memory, Rachel has rescued Deckard, right? After this, they go back to his place. He has a drink, falls asleep. And then Rachel starts playing the piano and then seeing the photos on his piano, like puts her hair down. Like I'm going to be like a sexy mannequin woman, I suppose. I don't know exactly what she was going well, for. I think she was trying to emulate the pictures a little yes. bit. Feel, become yes. a little bit more human, a little bit more laid back. Exactly. He like wakes up and he gets up and he makes a pass at her. And then he goes to grab her and she walks out. He runs over with this uh, truly appalling look on his face and slams the door shut, pushes her up against the wall, and basically forces himself on her and forces her to ask him to force himself on her. She's clearly frightened and she's distressed. And the look on Decker's face is basically like, it's either we fuck or I'll kill you. Like, that is essentially what he's, he's communicating. Most of this scene plays out like a rape, and I suppose it redeems itself in the end because Rachel sort of gets into it, right? Like, she asks for it at the end. But maybe I thought, going back and looking at it again, I think the only reason why we know how to feel in this is actually the weird sexy saxophone score. Because as they get closer together, it's like, blah, 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 and it's getting real sexy. And then she walks away, and then it's like, bum, bum, bum. And you're like, oh shit, something's going to happen. But then when he goes to embrace her again, before Rachel has got back into interfacing with him, the sexy saxophone comes back in again, cueing the audience to know it's okay. It's still sexy. It's still going to be all right. Mm. They still love each other. Well, that's clearly why that was added. Yes. And at the time, it was really controversial. I remember that, that it was disturbing to a lot of people. And Empire Strikes Back came out before this, right? And in that, Princess Leia says to him, I love you. And he says, I know. And we think that's funny now. But at that time, I remember it was a huge controversial thing. And there, was, there were all kinds of people who were angry about it. And then like a couple years later, he basically rapes a woman on screen. And he and Sean Young were not friendly at all. Right. And a lot of that scene, and I guess there's more of it where she wraps her legs around him and thankfully that's not in there because it's weird enough as it is. But <laughs> that was called the hate scene, not only because it seems like, you know, it's basically a rape, but I think actually there is a lot of tension there that's real. And they really probably had to overload it with an obvious, this is romance music, sexy 1982 romance music, Kenny G. <laughs> and it works out because at the very end, it may even be a looped line because you don't, I don't think you see her mouth move. She adds her own line. Yes. She says like, put your hands on me or something. Right. Which he didn't say, which means that now she's in. Right. I was going to say, I don't know if I actually saw the scene quite the same way. And I don't know how much of it was the success of the horrible saxophone. But <laughs> what I saw the scene, it's clearly disturbing. He's like clearly violent and he clearly feels like she owes him and that he can use her because she's just a, you know, she's a machine. And he's maybe starting to feel some feelings for her, but it's clearly starts out violent. But there's a part of me that sees the scene, him trying to evoke an emotion because she's been completely cold the entire movie before that. She's just started to question, but she really hasn't developed any emotion yet. She showed up and ran away. It wasn't until she shot someone that you actually saw anything that could be considered real emotion. And there's a part of me that, that wonders if he's not trying to shock her into having an emotion and teaching her what to say in that situation because she's never been in that situation. I don't disagree that it's very easy to see it as a rape through and through and kind of be forced that she's into it. But given that you kind of look at all of the replicants throughout the movie as potentially learning how to have emotions, mm -hmm. and she is the least emotionally developed at the beginning of the movie, even though she didn't know she was a replicant and every other replicant in the movie does know that they're a replicant, she's clearly the least developed and she's the one who's just learning that she should care about life and just learning to be emotional. And from that perspective, you could take the nice Harrison Ford approach. 
I think you're right. I think you're right. Current. I think watching the film now with a little distance on it and really taking into account all the things we've been talking about and what Deckard is or what Deckard isn't, and we know what Rachel is. I think other than the corny saxophone music, I think now when I see it, I don't see it as a cut and dry, this is a bad idea. I do see it as a complicated, too immature, grown children mm-hmm. with the bodies of good-looking adults trying to sort of paw each other and work it out. Yeah, and he doesn't really know how to have a relationship with a replicant either, because that's one of the things that's happening in the movie is he's just starting to get this idea that you could actually have feelings for a replicant too. So your comment that they're both sort of grown children is, I think, a very apropos one. Hmm. Well, if he is a replicant for a moment, we'll pretend he is one. She's a superior model. I look at it now and I actually see him as trying to be part of what she is. Hmm. Hmm. I'm not really sure how to read it. And there's parts of it that make me really uncomfortable. But I don't think of it as a straight-across rape scene. It's just rapey. (laughs) I know that that's... Rape light. Yes. Not a legitimate rape. By the way, this is the second in a row Radio Versions The Martians panel where a serious discussion about a fictional depiction of rape has happened. And I hope we don't make a thing of it. I really don't. Welcome to the rape segment. No, I don't think it's that at all. I think that part of it is that I don't think Ridley Scott intentionally made a rape scene. And it's possible that that's what he filmed, and that's why the saxophone is horned in. Like a lot of things, including the voiceover, were put in to fix parts of the movie that they didn't think would work for a mainstream audience. And the last thing you want to do is have your main character rape somebody. Right. I mean, that's really uncomfortable. So I think part of that was put in there. I know that there was an episode on the last season of Game of Thrones, which has a rape scene in it that wasn't intended to be a rape scene. Mm-hmm. So I know sometimes it's just a failure of the filmmaker. Between brother and sister as well. Exactly. Let's go full nine on this one. (laughs) But yeah, I think that maybe that wasn't what they were intending to make. It was a, I think maybe what they were trying to make was two characters that had this wall up around themselves that she found out that she wasn't really human and she'd sort of shut down and he was trying to break through that. But he did it in a way that is kind of uncomfortable and let's just admit it, really predatory. Right. I wonder, too, because in the book, they actually explained a little bit more why he actually decides to have sex with a replicant. I wonder, too, if an early version of the script or of the movie actually had any of that. Hmm. The other bounty hunter that you mentioned earlier in the book actually is very cold about it. And he says what you should do with replicants, especially if they're hot, is you first should go to bed with them and then you should retire them. Right. And Deckard in the book tries to do that and fails. He gets feelings for her and lets her off. You're right. So there are at least two deleted scenes where he's talking to Holden in the iron lung chamber. The first of the scenes is right after he gets the assignment. He goes to see Holden and Holden does this routine. He's like, oh, my God, it's all over for us. We can't tell the difference between these anymore. It's, we're, we're, we're screwed. We're done. The second time he comes back much later after he retires Zora. And then Holden's joking around with him. He's going like, oh, so did you get some of that before you retired her? So I think that the Blade Runners or the Bounty Hunters were just sort of these asshole guys, asshole cops who got whatever they wanted out of whatever and got their job done. Well, they're hired murderers. Right. Well, so we're getting near the end here, but I want to ask one question that I think will be good for our listeners, especially those that have not watched it before. Which of the versions of the film do you think is authoritative in your mind and why? Micah? I can't say that I've watched all three versions from start to finish. I would say that I probably enjoyed the final cut the most, but I do, and I'm sure I'm going to get skewered by fans everywhere for this, I do actually think, though the voiceover was horribly performed, there are parts of it that add beneficially to the movie. 
if they had been planned originally for the movie, that they would have actually benefited the movie and we wouldn't have had such a hard time with them. But if I have to pick one as is, I would have to say that the final cut, it tries to speak for itself the most, but it also, for me, being an aficionado of the book, I miss the little bits of detail that are actually in the original cut that aren't in the final cut. Hmm. Matt, same question to you. Well, firstly, I have to say I kind of agree with Micah about what he's saying about the original cut and the voiceover, because I think it solves the problem of the audience not being able to empathize, not just with Deckard, but with the world we're in. We're on the inside with him, and he's Han Solo, so we're all going to be okay. Once that happens, I think if you've never seen it before, you feel enough times with the voiceover that you're going to be okay, and so is Rick. Hmm. Because he's telling this seemingly maybe from the future, because it's already happened, or it's just, we're not really sure, but usually voiceover means the person is either speaking from the grave, but it means he's going to survive, at least to the end of the film. Hmm. He also tells you up front that he doesn't want to be a killer anymore. He's a human who, the day before the movie started, had things to do, he had a wife, he is one of you, and let's go on a journey with him. But as far as what I prefer to watch myself, I would have to say the director's cut. Oh. The ultimate cut might be a little overly indulgent because it was put together in hindsight when there was all this excitement about what is or what isn't Blade Runner about. That's interesting because the director's cut was not strictly authorized by Ridley Scott. That's one of the reasons why studio filmmaking can go one way or the other. Right. Sometimes the director's cut the uncut real version is actually not as satisfying because it hasn't gone through the normal thinking of the audience first process. <laughs> and usually that injures a film. Sure. But in this case, I think sometimes after the fact, with all the hype, a director may get a little confused about what the original statement was, even though clearly that's the one that he would say is the ultimate one. I think the director's cut really tells the story best and gives you enough to go either way, but not so much where it's brutally obvious. Hmm. Mike, same question. I only saw the theatrical cut and the director's cut. Oh. I didn't get a chance to watch the final cut, though I looked up on the internet what the difference is between director's and final cut is. As far as I can tell, the difference is they didn't have in the director's cut the full footage of the unicorn dream. And a lot of that came from the fact that they just didn't have the footage looking the way they wanted it to and they had to make do. From what I understand, they got that footage and they fixed it up for the final cut. So they got what they had intended. Sure. So I look at that and I say, yeah, oh, I don't really think there's that much difference between the final cut and the director's cut, aside from it being a bit more authentic as far as being a quote unquote director's cut, meaning that these aren't just undoing decisions that the director didn't want by the third party. But the director himself actually going in after the fact and doing the thing that he wished he had done before, and also things that he wanted to do after the fact, that there's a bit of Monday morning quarterbacking in it as well. But that's interesting that you say that because I would say the final cut, but then I'd say that it's not a Lucas sort of rewriting history sort of situation. He went in and he removed the wires from the spinners because it always bugged him. They reshot Joanna Cassidy's face so it wasn't so obvious that it was a stunt double crashing through the glass. They added a couple cuts to certain scenes that they don't really add anything. I don't actually, you know, there's some of them are like 
there's a cut of Holden's face, and there's a cut of Deckard's face at the piano, and there's a little bit more violence when Pris is beating up Deckard. Like, there's little tiny things that are added. The unicorn scene is a little bit longer. Biggest change, I would say, is just that the dove shot is replaced with a shot that is a dove flying in a very more Blade Runner-ish looking backdrop to the sky, so it doesn't look totally out of place. So it, it seems to me that the final cut is just a polished version of the director's cut. Right. So the director's cut, to me, really is the version of the movie that I want, because so much of the stuff that is put into the theatrical version are attempted fixes. And maybe I'm just weird as a science fiction fan, but I'm constantly amazed and confused by the things that seem to confuse mainstream audiences. I think we've gotten better at this because, you know, nerds have inherited the earth, so to speak. There's a lot more sci-fi out there and there's a lot more fiction and stuff on television, which is geared towards an engaged audience who wants to ask questions and debate things in a way that they weren't when like Gunsmoke was on TV. Sure. So I think for me, a lot of the things in the theatrical cut are there to fix problems that I just don't have because grandma got confused by it. (laughs) All right. Fantastic answer. We're going to take a little break and we're going to be back with High Point, Low Point. And now it's time for our regular segment we like to call High Point, Low Point. That's where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel, starting with Low Point. Micah, what is your low point for Blade Runner? Ominously boiling eggs. <laughs> no, wait, I'm, I'm actually serious. Would, would you care to explain that? So there's the scene where they're threatening J.F. Sebastian to try and get into the creator. And there's this part where the sound of the egg suddenly becomes louder, as though that's supposed to make us more scared of Roy Batty. I do joke there, but sort of that whole scene, the whole environment in J.F. Sebastian's apartment the whole characterization of like just sort of the clowniness and, and sort of Pris dressing up as a clown, that felt like the most cartoony and not useful to the story. Like, put aside any other concerns I might have about, you know, the story or it not comparing to the book. I really felt uncomfortable in J.F. Sebastian's apartment with all the toys and the clowniness and the cheesiness and those hard-boiled eggs being ominous. <laughs> that really sent it over the edge. That's what? when I lost all credibility. Why? Because you thought they would be poison if you ate them or what? What's the... No, it's just, you know, J.F. Sebastian, he's there. He loves them. Like, he's actually really entranced. He's the only person in the whole movie who just immediately sees them as a wonderful thing. And so they found acceptance. They found someone who doesn't matter whether he was made or not made, who's like them. You know, he wants to just see them do something amazing. And so Pris does a flip or whatever, and then she grabs an egg out of the boiling water. Okay, fine. And then they immediately go to threaten him. And they've taken the only person who, in the movie, clearly actually can just accept them for who they are and won't care how long they live. And is, in fact, in their same plight. Right. And then they go and threaten him. And that's a point at which, kind of like when Roy kills him later, which makes you lose, you know, some sympathy for Roy. That in particular, they just played on J.F. Sebastian there. But they did it in such a clownish way that it actually made them seem like buffoons to me. Mm. And it made me sort of lose the train that was being built, this sort of, you know, sympathetic train. That is interesting. So Pris proves that she's a replicant by sticking her hand in over hot water. And Chu, Hannibal Chu, the eye maker, learns that Leon and Batty are replicants by sticking his hand in a very cold substance. So it's kind of a bit that marries those two, the realization of, oh, you're not real. This is the way we're not real. 
that was another cheesy point is when uh, Leon is putting eyeballs on, you know, Chu's shoulders and they're falling off. Well, Roy's supposed to be giving this, you know, kind of scary, threatening speech. And actually, you're looking at just this clownish stacking of eyeballs. Well, that's interesting you bring that up. Roy is playing around with Chu, too. He's like, mm-hmm. Tyrell Corporation? Like, he obviously already knows the information. He's letting him suffer in the cold slowly, and he's just sort of like drawing him through it and pretending as if he's a small child and, and is starting from zero. I didn't mind both of those moments because I think the fact that you get to see him be somewhat menacing, I guess I'm willing from the sympathy point of view to sort of let some of it go because one, they have undeveloped emotions and undeveloped morality. But also getting back to that point that they are all under death sentence, whether they threaten people or not. They know that if anyone catches them, they're going to get turned in and gunned down in the street. So it usually is best to send a message real quick into that conversation. One of the things that's sort of interesting when J.F. Sebastian first meets Pris outside, she's pretending to be a runaway who's lost and he lets her into his house. Obviously, he has a bit of a crush on her. Right. And you can see his reaction when Roy shows up. I mean, it changes right away because he sees that Roy's this incredible person, too. And this is actually more interesting than just a pretty girl likes me. I lose a lot of sympathy for him when he does kill J.F. Sebastian at the end. And I do see that moment of him threatening him. But there is a bit of defense in that, which he knows J.F. Sebastian works for the very guy who could bring all manner of cops down on him. And all he has to do is make a phone call and and these people are all dead. So, yeah, they're still going to threaten him. They're very friendly with him in a lot of ways, in Mm. a menacing way. But they also bring him a momentary sort of nuclear family. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And other than a little jiggity jig Kaiser Wilhelm little (laughs) replicant guy who's clearly either very interested in Pris or terrified of the situation. I think it's I think it's terrified. I think all of the dolls are terrified. They know that this is going to work out poorly for JF, who's their creator. The whole arrangement with the hands going in things that human hands can't is probably just an offshoot of, hey, these things are so human, it's easy for the audience to visually forget that they're more than human. Right. And we have to reestablish that. There's probably all kinds of, there's probably a thesis somewhere about, you know, the duality of cold and hot hands (laughs) versus eyeballs and whatever. But I think just as a filmmaker, it seems like it would be something you'd have to do to reestablish the superhumanness of, of the characters. Okay, Matt, what's your low point for Blade Runner? My low point for the entire Blade Runner universe, I think, is that for me, it's a film that should be enjoyed. And like many things that are really complicated and have different versions and have existed over a long period of time, they are sort of picked apart. And I know that's what we're doing today, and I could do it all day long. But when it really comes down to it, it's a movie that because it's in a science fiction-y genre, it's analyzed in a different way than if we just pretended that it was a current period, say we're living in 2019 and someone decided to make a detective film. It should be compared to maybe like Chinatown. And compared to Chinatown, it's an action, fast moving action film. Right. (laughs) Comparing it to really almost anything that's popular in science fiction, especially the action science fiction, is almost like a disservice to the film because then you end up analyzing it almost like it's a synthetic creature itself when in fact it's one of the last real organic big sci-fi spectacle type of films because it's models versus CG, a humanness to the imperfections in it. It isn't overly polished. A film like this would have never gotten through the sort of studio system that we have now. It would just be too much of a risk 
So for me, breaking it down to its base parts is the low point for me for the Blade Runner universe. Does that somehow lessen your enjoyment, though? Because I would argue that one of the reasons that great things are great is because they do stand up to discussion and scrutiny. Oh, no, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. In my whole life, I've watched and enjoyed films with one part of my brain and at the same time tried to figure out how they did it. So for me, it isn't turn off your brain and just be part of this immersive experience. For the average viewer, they, for some reason, are expected to be part of the whole story outside of the film itself. And I think that's why it may be intimidating to, a little bit to people who've never seen it before. Just like someone who's never seen Casablanca before or seen Citizen Kane before, they're coming into it with this idea that these are the best movies ever. And if you don't get all the little things, they don't actually get to enjoy it as a viewer, as an audience member, and watch it unfold in front of them like an opera they're almost expected to have expectations because it's been so built up in circles like the one we're in right now, which is great. But I do think it's intimidating to more of just someone who wants to enjoy a movie because of all of the talk about Blade Runner over all these years. It almost is a turnoff when it could easily be a really great sort of gateway drug to a more adult, thought-provoking science fiction, which for me would mean that people would have to turn around and go back into time and start to rediscover the things that influence this film. But instead, what happens, I think, is it seems like it's a lot of work to watch it. <laughs> Even though at the same time, I love pouring over it, I think it does a disservice or it has done a disservice to a good movie. Mike, what's your low point for Blade Runner? For me, the low point, uh, it's got to be the voiceover in the theatrical release. Oh. I know this is like a cliche thing to complain about, but the first time I watched it, I didn't know what it was like without it. I know that people complained about it, and I was expecting it to be just utterly terrible. And I didn't hate it when I watched it the first time through. I actually had no problem with it. I'm a big fan of Raymond Chandler. I love that kind of pulpy crime noir thing. And part of being a detective is doing the voiceover. It's part of the tone. It's part of the flavor. So I had no problem with it. Then I watched the director's cut and it was gone. And I realized how little I missed it. And I thought at first, maybe it was because I already knew the information in that voiceover and I was projecting it on the movie. So I went to a website that actually wrote down the script for each of the voiceover segments, and most of it had nothing really to add to the rest of the film. There were little flavor bits, like him mentioning his ex-wife, but that's almost a stereotypical detective thing. Every detective has some right. rocky relationship with his ex-wife. Right. But I realized I really didn't get that much extra. There was a couple parts that I did Or maybe people in the 80s were ignorant about that sushi was cold fish, and so they had to explicitly explain that to the audience. <laughs> just a little bit. But most of it is just totally superfluous. The only bit that I actually like is that contrast where he calls himself a killer. I think that easily could have been added into the rest of the movie. The rest of it feels, the more I listen to it, incredibly stilted. It feels like a completely different voice than the rest of the movie. It doesn't feel like Harrison Ford is really throwing himself into this performance in the same way he does the rest of the movie. It kind of feels like he's talking like this because, fuck, I still got the rest of this contract. I thought I was done with this goddamn film. I think you're perfectly right. You're probably right about that. <laughs> and the more I learned about the film, it confirmed that notion. And the more I heard it, it suffered a little bit more every time I heard it. I liked the voiceover less and less. And as I watched the documentary about the making of the film, I heard those segments again, and they really stuck out at me. It really feels like something that's thrown in there, like I said, to try to fix a film that wasn't broken. 
And it really feels like pandering to an audience that isn't willing to meet fiction halfway. Or, or at least if it was, if I may correct you, at least if it was broken, it was broken intentionally. Yeah, there was something there. There was something where an audience is expected to do a little bit of thinking while watching a movie and not just have it spoon fed to them. And a lot of the stuff in the movie was straight out telling you, hey, guess what? Bryant's a racist. I'm a killer. Right. And I'm going to tell right. you exactly why it is that Roy Batty spared my life at the end of the movie instead of letting you experience that moment. But the thing that it really bothered me the most was the voiceover felt like it was afraid of letting the movie have a quiet moment. Oh, especially with the end. The end is a great example, but also the scene where Gaff has basically just railroaded Deckard into coming into the office to talk to his old boss. There's something about watching that scene and looking out the window and seeing the city from the air. And it's like they're terrified of having any moments where there isn't any dialogue or there isn't any plot happening. It's a moment where you're supposed to experience the world that this movie has created. And they're so terrified of having that quiet moment that they just have to fill that silence with this voiceover that really doesn't add much. To me, that's really where the low point comes in, is it feels like it's underestimating the audience. Maybe they did so rightfully, but it hurt the film doing it. Hmm. It comes from fear, not from storytelling place. It comes from someone was concerned that, like you said, there was just what's going on here. There's no dialogue for four seconds. We really need to fill this hole here where there isn't one. Right. So right. what if the voiceover had been awesome? What would you guys feel then? Because I think back to our discussion about the best cut of the movie. And some of the things that you guys were saying were about the director's vision. And I was thinking about writers. Writers, the book that we read is rarely the book they originally wrote. Same with directors, right? There's an editing process and there's a showing to people who haven't been involved in the creation of the, the work of art and people who have been involved and professional editors and non-professionals. And so I won't defend the voiceover in any way. Certainly it was poorly executed. And most of it, you're probably right, is not useful. Some adds a little bit of flavor that I actually like if it had been performed correctly. But what if it had been great? What if it, if it had actually added to the film? I think because it does detract and because it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't let them have a quiet moment and because it seems so jarring. I mean, I don't think we'd be talking about it. Interestingly enough, it's somewhat like we've talked about the is or isn't he a replicant. Had there not been specific changes made to the film afterwards, it wouldn't have been contentious. It was not contentious until the changes were made. There's actually some movies that have a good example of really good voiceover added to them. One of them is Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Oh, yeah. Sure. There's only a couple moments in the movie, I think maybe three or four, where Sarah Connor, played by Linda Hamilton, does voiceover, including the last lines of the movie. And it's really good. And you can tell it was written into the movie from the very inception that it's this combination of images and words and sounds and pictures and music that were intended from the very beginning as the way to end it. All of the voiceover is a fix, not an intent. Hmm. For my low point, there's a lot of things about Blade Runner and the phenomenon associated with it that I think weren't a low point. Matt, yours was straight on point. In fact, I've heard several times in this podcast history, some people's low point have been other people, other fans around this make it shit for me. Other people are shit is frequently a low point. The three sequel novels by K.W. Jeter are really high up there. They're awful. They're terrible. They shouldn't exist. But I think really the thing for me that has the potential to truly deface the movie and the legacy of Blade Runner is the newly announced Blade Runner sequel that Ridley Scott now intends to, apparently intends to do. Uh. Now Ridley Scott said he's going to direct and Hampton Fancher is back attached to write along with Michael Green whose stellar credentials involve writing for Heroes, the TV show, and the Green Lantern movie. Marvelous piece of writing for cinema there. 
And I'm sure I don't need to convince you that the rash of truly unnecessary modern sequels slash prequels of older classic films that have popped up make my point already. I mean, Tron, Karate Kid, Blues Brothers. Fuck, there was even a Basic Instinct 2. Did they need to make Basic Instinct 2? Why did they make it? Porn. (laughs) I mean, these are not like direct-to-video affairs. They're actual really for, you know, they put a real budget into them. And I would argue they're mostly transparent cash-ins. And in the end, they show us that they would have been better off never having been made because what they do is they tarnish the luster of the original. And I'm afraid that's what's going to happen to Blade Runner. Scott's track record with Prometheus, I think, speaks for itself. He can make films that look good, but they all seem to fall short in like your expectations of ask questions and then never answers them and doesn't make any sense. But come on, you want to see replicants versus aliens. <laughs> I do. <laughs> huh. Technically, we already had that with Bishop, right, and right, replicants right. lost. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Waylon Yutani is competitor for Tyrell. They are, they are. And Scott has himself said multiple times that Blade Runner is his, quote, most personal and complete film. So in that sense, I think it's like really Scott himself, until he got into his 70s or whenever, just never thought it was even necessary to do it. But for me, Blade Runner is just not something I want to see any more of. And I don't think the story requires nor deserves any continuation. If those novelizations are any indication, continuing the story leads to just plots that are just excessive and silly and just not worth it. There's too much extrapolation on things that don't need to be, and I fear that it'll remove what was sort of captivating about the story to begin with. In my mind, if Ridley Scott or anyone else wants to do Blade Runner 2, Electric Boogaloo, that would be the sequel I'd put on it. I think it'll only detract from its essence and not add to it. I think you're absolutely correct. Yay! (laughs) Go B! (laughs) It's funny, you actually convinced me there. I previously did not care because, again, I was not one of the people who held it up as the greatest movie in science fiction ever. I didn't really care whether there was a sequel because it wasn't going to harm or improve the original. But some of what you just said, it does actually resonate with me a little bit that you don't need to go touch that. You could just pick another thing. You could make another movie. I look at the Prometheus as a good example of why we don't want Ridley Scott to go back to the trough again and create a prequel or a sequel to a movie that is already a masterpiece. I look at Blade Runner and I don't see a need for more story here. I think that everything that you wanted to say about this world and the themes behind it, about what is empathy, what makes us human, is an artificial life form any different than one that came out of another person? And I think the answer that they make is no, very strongly. If they do a sequel to that, or a prequel, or a prequel sequel, or a (laughs) reboot, or anything, all they're going to do is reaffirm all the things that we already knew from the original movie. And I can only be reminded of the prequel comic books that were made to Alan Moore's Watchmen a couple years ago. Oh, God, yeah. There's no need for any of them. And all they ever did in any of those books is, again, reaffirm stuff that we already learned from the main story, which is superior. And I can see a Blade Runner sequel or prequel just doing that. Okay. I submit to you that the way that you could actually create a great Blade Runner sequel is by having James Cameron do it instead. <laughs> <laughs> Look what he did with Aliens. That's true. He's track record. <laughs> I guarantee you he would feel exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we're going to move on to High Point, the top of the mountain. Let's start with you, Matt. My High Point for Blade Runner has to really come down to one thing for me. It's really it's the top of the pyramid, and without it, I don't think we'd be talking about this movie today. Rick Deckard's haircut. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm, this is fun, but I am definitely serious. Rick Deckard's haircut now is, I think, the main reason why the movie still looks new. Hmm. 
the time the movie came out, it's tough to tell now because in the mid 90s, George Clooney brought back the Caesar cut. And mm. since then, it has been an option for haircuts. And now you can have a Hitler Youth cut or a Mohawk or it doesn't matter. We live in a time now where it isn't one male haircut style is the dominant. You don't have to look like John Travolta or Han Solo from Star Wars with his mutton chops and Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse with a mullet. All these movies, if they all had Deckard's haircut, would look fresh and new because he would be the most modern looking guy. Everybody hmm. else doesn't matter what they look like. In this film, Harrison Ford wanted to play it bald. <laughs> so wow probably because he was trying to be difficult and wanted to separate himself from han solo and a lot of other things so he got this haircut which was intentionally bad so that they would allow him to shave his head because they bought the indiana jones han solo sideburned harrison ford and he didn't want to give them that hmm. so they ended up with this on purpose bad haircut up until like I said, from 1982 to the mid-90s, this was a bad haircut for men <laughs> on Earth. <laughs> and I myself have it and have had it for many years. But <laughs> So here's the thing. Without the hair, if you had the Han hair, the movie would not have the longevity it has today. And I think the important lesson from that is knowing the context of a film and when it was made, looking back in hindsight, you kind of had to have been there or have to know the era to understand. Otherwise, that's lost on you. If you watch an old 1930s movie and they go to a nightclub and someone's playing boogie woogie music, <laughs> for us, it seems like it's old people music. But in the movie, in the theater, it was like they went to the most raucous hip hop club you ever saw. The distance we have changes our perception of it at the time. Taking that into effect, somehow this haircut, which was at the time reviewers and people coming out of the theater and newspaper articles, or half of them were, what the hell is wrong with Harrison Ford's head? <laughs> and what is this movie about? But a lot of it had to do with the haircut. I really think that the whole movie itself really hinges upon what at the time really stood out as something odd. In a world that's completely alien and odd, this one thing now is what keeps it fresh because he actually looks timeless. Hmm. Interesting. Mike, what was your high point? For me, the high point is the world building. I've never seen a movie in so short a time build a world that feels so real and so organic. It's just incredible that Ridley Scott and these people put this stuff together using entirely practical effects. I mean, I buy this world from the very beginning to the very end. I mean, I normally cringe at product placement in movies, but here it actually made it feel more real. It isn't like some fictional soda brand that's on this billboard. It's Coca-Cola. And it feels a bit like Times Square. Hmm. I mean, everything looks like a real machine. And the little things where they take these sort of anachronisms, things that didn't actually pan out in real life, but it's sort of this mix of the past and the future together. Even though, you know, things like cell phones and stuff exist that aren't in this movie because it's projected from 1982 onward. It doesn't really matter because all the little differences that they have in this movie really make it. Like, for instance, that photo analyzer that Deckard uses to look at that photo from Leon's apartment. I fucking love that machine. Right. Not only because it makes these little clicking noises as it adjusts itself, and it's like a microfiche machine <laughs> from, like, the public library. <laughs> I love that thing. I love the pumping billows on the Voight-Kampf machine. Mm -hmm. I love the 
constant use of ceiling fans. I love the crime noir elements, the billboards for things like Atari and all this Chinese and Japanese lettering everywhere. It really brings this place alive. I love that fish stand that has the swordfish logo on the side of the building. I mean, the little things like that really make this world. It's that weird mixture of future tech and anachronism that really make this thing work. Even in the Tyrell building, which is apparently the cleanest place in the universe, right. there's this wonderful kind of Egyptian motif to it, where he really is the god at the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. And that when these guys come to Earth to confront this guy, it really feels like they're going to Valhalla or something. Even then, just kind of cool, the little visual ticks like, Tyrell himself kind of looks like this cold, evil version of George Burns as God. <laughs> and I think that element, to me, is fascinating. Hmm. And again, all with practical effects. And right. when you watch the behind-the-scenes stuff, and you realize how much work it took to create that actual cityscape with the pumping fire that comes out and probably poison gas and all sorts of stuff. And the fact that this was done on studio lots, studio lots are like the stereotype right. for cheap fake cities that you see in like old episodes of Bonanza. Right. But the way that he filmed a lot of it at night and the way that he had it constantly rain and the fact that he aged all the stuff made this fake studio lot of a pre-built city street into something that felt far more real than anything that George Lucas's employees created in a computer for the prequels. Mm. I mean, everything in this movie, from the way that the windshield wipers on the spinner are pushing away real water, they built something that felt so real that it felt like the only reason that we're not talking about all the stuff that we see is it's just not part of the story. It felt like if I'm going to walk down a city street in New York, there's all of these stories happening around me, but it's not my story, so I'm just going to move on through it. And that's what I got the sense of, Mm. that this is a place that stories happen in. It would have happened if you weren't there to witness it. Absolutely. And I think the other thing with practical effects, because I'm not somebody who has this knee-jerk aversion to CGI that I think a lot of people who love film and are also kind of nerdy the way we are kind of have. But the truth is, is that practical effects age so much better than CGI effects. And I can look at CGI effects from older movies like Star Trek VI is the first Star Trek movie that didn't exclusively use models for the ships. Sure. There is a couple CGI shops the Enterprise banking by, and it looks fucking terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And all the model shots from 1978 from the motion picture still look great. The same thing when you look at Gollum. Gollum is only 10 years old. Lord of the Rings movies, he was amazing when he first came out. And most of the appearances that he has in the movie still look great. But there are moments where he looks fucking terrible, and it just jumps out at you. And I have to wonder how much worse Blade Runner would have aged if it had been made now and we were looking back 10 years on it rather than 30 years. Well, how good does the fifth element look now? I wonder. (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious. I want to rewatch it again. Actually, you know what looks really good still is Jurassic Park. Hmm. Jurassic Park has CGI and it also has practical. But like this movie knows that if you put it in the rain and you make it dark and you know your big special effects shots are not right up in the camera, they're sort of at the middle distance or far away, you can cover a lot. Blade Runner knew that. And that's why they have so much of the lens flare to cover up a lot of the effects. And Hmm. it looks great. It Hmm. makes it feel real. And I think knowing the limitations of the technology that you're using and creating something like with Deckard's haircut that can age into the world and doesn't feel like, as much as I love Logan's Run, that is such a fucking 70s movie. There is no way around it. So I think really the world building and the amazing craftsmanship that went into it is my high point. Hmm. Micah, can you drudge up a high point? 
I can actually. I've switched my high point since we've been talking. What? I had, I had <gasps> planned one. Oh. And I'm not going to give it to you. Okay. I'll give you a taste. Okay. I was going to say when Roy puts the nail through his hand, I was going to say something about that, but I'm actually going to surprise you. My high point is gaff. Oh, yes. All right. And one of the reasons that I would say that is because if we're talking solely about the movie, but you know about the book, it's the one unique thing, the only unique thing that is actually created in the movie. Everything else is drawn. It's changes to the book. It's sort of a different idea. Gaff is wholly unique. Mm -hmm. He's nowhere to be found in the book. And if you look in the movie, from the very beginning, he's actually kind of cool. He's kind of... He is pretty cool. A person. He's like, as much as he speaks this gutter speak and, you know, which is also pretty cool and adds to one of the reasons why he's my answer is that he actually just seems like a guy. And he also seems like he has his own things. He goes home and he actually has hobbies and interests. He doesn't just go to the bar and get drunk or whatever. <laughs> like they go and check out people's apartments and he makes these little stick figures and he's making little you know, animals and little guy with a penis in the in Leon's <laughs> apartment or whatever. And you, you never explain it. There's no like you can figure out once you get to the end. It's so that there's something that Deckard would see. So he would know that Gaff was there. Mm -hmm. But even if you took that away, it's, it's just this wonderful like, why does he do that? Why does he make? How did he learn that? No one else in the movie seems to do anything like that. They have no interest. All they want to do is drink. I suppose you can say they play piano, although Decker doesn't really play piano. He just sort of sits at it. And so for me, like the fact that Gaff is this totally unique being to the movie is actually, I think, really special. And maybe some of my reaction to that is because I compare to the book and I say, hey, that's not something that got wrong. That's actually something that's right. And I don't have to compare it to anything. Hmm. But I think even if I hadn't read the book, clearly he wasn't intended to be special. He's kind of got like a pimp thing going on. He does have a little bit of a, you know, pimp thing. He's kind of a cross between, I don't know, Kramer and Decker. He's he's a little bit of like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Blade Runner. He's got a little bit, yeah. he's got this whole fleshed out thing that Edward James almost almost single-handedly came up by himself. He's gunning for a promotion. He's got like a 380-year family history. He's half Japanese, half Chicano. Like he's got this whole universe around him and you only just see tiny little slivers of what Gaff actually is. And you wouldn't even know he was gunning for promotion if you didn't have the voiceover. Right. Which actually I think is one of the places where I absolutely hate the voiceover because it makes him just this like, oh, you're just trying to get my job. You're just kind of an asshole. You'll shoot whoever. Right. Which is clearly not true. At the end, like, he is actually more human than Deckard. Like, sure. And he started that way. Right. right. If you watch the final cut, he's like, it's fine. She's not going to hurt anybody. He's not going to hurt anybody. They can just go off and she'll die. Doesn't really matter. We're all people anyway. Right. Is Gaff a Blade Runner, Blade Runner? <laughs> yes. A what? <laughs> I will say, uh, uh, speaking of Gaff, too, there's just as a side nerd note, it's actually kind of cool. Of course, he must have planned this. His name is Gaff. Well, no, that, that it was played by Edward James Almost, who would eventually be in Battlestar Galactica and have to deal with the skin jobs. Of course. In uh, Battlestar Galactica. Of course, yes. Holy shit, I didn't realize the <laughs> skin job is used again. That's got to be a Blade Runner riff. Of course, of course it is. Well, I didn't even write down my high point. My high point about Blade Runner is something entirely personal. It's the time that Eldon Terrell bought my lunch. <laughs> oh, I got some applause on the line. And did he buy you boiled eggs? No, he did not buy me boiled eggs. Was it at the Silver Spoon? It was not at the Silver Spoon or, the, or at the Snake Pit. It was not at the Snake Pit. There was a grocery strike in Southern California in 2003, 2004, and I was trying not to cross the picket line. So I went to Whole Foods, which does not employ 
union workers. I was walking around getting a sandwich or whatever, and I saw a guy in front of me, and I was like, ah, the guy, he kind of looks like it. I end up in line right behind him. He pulls out this very large roll of bills that has mostly a large bill on the outside and a lot of ones on the inside. And so he pulls out to pay. And like, as he pulls it out, like it's spring loaded, like a couple ones fall on the ground and I pick it up and I hand it to him. And he's like, oh, thank you. You're so honest. And I was like, I have to ask, are you, are you? And then he finishes my sentence, Joe Turkel, nice to meet you. And I'm like, oh, I'm flustered, flummoxed at the moment. And I was going to say, I just have to tell you, Blade Runner is, and then he again finishes my sentence, the best movie ever made. Yes, I know. Yes, I know. <laughs> and then he sees that I'm buying my lunch and he's like, you're such an honest guy. I'm going to buy you your lunch. And I'm like, no, you don't have to do that. And he's like, no, no, I can afford it. And he said, I have a pyramid after all. Right, exactly. We were checking out and then he said, you did see The Shining, right? I was in there and I was like, oh yes, you were the ghost bartender. And he's like, yes. And then he, so he's getting ready to leave. And he said, you know, uh, if I'm ever making another movie, look me up and I'll give you a part. And I'm like, okay, thanks. Blade Runner like, too. I was totally, <laughs> I was totally beaming for the whole time. Cause it was like, you know, Eldon Terrell bought me lunch, but I had a moment where I was like, wait a minute. Blade Runner is a classic movie. Anyone who goes to film school in Southern California no doubt has seen it. Does this happen every day to Joe Turkle or is he so obscure of an actor that it never happens? And so that point was like the best time of his month or that year when he was like, this young kid actually knows who I am. I who knows now? I, I think he's dead. I don't think he's alive anymore. When he walked away, did he leave a little origami unicorn? <laughs> no. I think he did pass away recently. Oh, all right. He got a sandwich from the god of biomechanics. So pretty- <laughs> yeah. Okay, and that's all the time we're going to have for this panel. I'd like to thank Matt Goodman. Thank you so much, Matt. Wonderful to be here. <laughs> awesome. Micah Crable, thanks for joining us as well. Absolutely. I am not a replicant. <laughs> and of course, my co-host, co-producer, Mike Gillis. What's a tortoise? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, and we'll see you next month. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave.